0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So, we are in Acts chapter 21. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, before Mother's Day, Mitch was sharing with us from the first part of Acts 21. And uh, during that time, he shared with us about Paul's return to Jerusalem and how he came to Jerusalem and And was intent on being able to share the good news of what God had been doing among the Gentiles in uh the the greater part of the Roman Empire and the way that the gospel had been continuing to to spread and so Paul returns to Jerusalem with knowing though that in every city that he goes in the Holy Spirit is testifying by the hand of prophets and by by the witness of the saints that suffering and imprisonment wait for him in jerusalem and when he arrives in jerusalem he meets with uh the early church founders james uh, is there the the half brother of the lord who is a a leader within the early church and the apostles that uh, have continued to remain there and, and they begin to warn Paul about the tensions that are rising there in Jerusalem, because there's reports from those that have lived in those communities, J- Jewish people who've lived in those communities, that are now coming back to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and Pentecost. They're there for the for the holidays, uh, for those those Jewish festivals that were so important to their their worship. And they're bringing back reports that that Paul is is undoing jewish traditions and is encouraging jewish believers that they don't have to retain their jewish identity and uh and so there's a lot of tension in the city and so james comes up with this plan he says okay paul here's what i think you should do you'll come i've got these guys that have taken a vow uh a vow of a nazarite and and they're going through the ceremony and we think that you should join them. And by going to the temple and participating in this vow, what's going to happen is people will see that you're not against the traditions of our forefathers. You're not against what is going on there. And so Paul, uh, out of a heart to to reach his own countrymen, he concedes. He says, okay, yeah, that, that's a good thing. This is a way for me to build... A bridge with my own community. So, just to to kind of recap where we left off in verse twenty-seven, it says this: and when the seven days were almost completed, that is the seven days of of this uh, Nazarite vow, the Jews from Asia. Now, remember, Asia is the, the northern part of Greece and and Turkey, and that is a place where Paul has planted churches and done ministry the Jews that had traveled from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. They were crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and and has defiled this holy place. Now, you have to understand that to bring people who were not jewish passed the court of the gentiles that was a capital offense it was something that was worthy of death so he is in dangerous territory culturally and and the reason that they thought that he had defiled this holy place is because verse 29 they had previously seen trophimus the ephesian with him in the city and they supposed that paul had brought him into the temple. So guilt by association there Because he's hanging out with Gentiles They thought for sure Paul brought a Gentile Into the temple Then all the city was stirred up And the people ran together And they seized Paul And dragged him out of the temple And at once the gates were shut And as they were seeking to kill him Word came To the tribune of the cohort That all Jerusalem was in confusion So Again, Rome is in power, has authority over Jerusalem, and they hear that there is rioting in the streets. And so, verse 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So Paul is getting a a full-on curb stomp here. There's a, a bunch of people all around him. They're beating him, and it is their intent to kill him. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of, the, of peop, the people followed, crying out, away with him. So th- there's this huge uproar, and it's so rowdy, it's so much of a ruckus, that what is happening is the, the soldiers have to literally pick Paul up after his beatdown and, and carry him out of uh, the city and bring him into the barracks where all the soldiers lived. So that they could question him because the, the crowd is so hostile. They just want to tear him limb from limb. So the Jews cite evidence that, that Paul has defiled the temple, that he's preaching against the customs and encouraging Jewish people to not live as Jewish people. And this is because they see Trophimus, this Gentile with him, and they assume that he brought Trophimus into the temple as well. And here we we see Paul, just his resilience in the middle of this, because we're going to see a transition in verse 37. As Paul is dragged away, he says to uh, those that were, were carrying him away, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he, the tribune, said, well, do you know Greek are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins or the Greek word there, Sicario the assassins out into the, into the wilderness aren't you the guy that just led this revolt and all these assassins these Sicario were, were, were brought out into the desert isn't that you? Paul replied no I, I, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia A citizen of no obscure city, I beg you to permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given them permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in in the Hebrew language. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment. I I want you to see, first of all, the way that God had worked in Paul's heart. He had such a clear gospel focus. Why is he in Jerusalem in the first place? I mean, everywhere that he goes, the Spirit of God is testifying that, that suffering is what's waiting for him, that imprisonment is waiting for him. Matter of fact, back in verse 11, a prophet comes, takes Paul's own belt, and then binds his hands and says, whoever owns this belt will be bound in like manner. There, there is an awareness that Paul is heading into the hornet's nest and that he's going to suffer as a consequence. Why is he there? Well, because he has a gospel focus. Even in, in verses 27 through 36, even though he's beat down, he won't let up. As they're dragging him away, he says to the tribune, he says, hey, listen, kid. Could you just let me talk to the people? I just want them to hear my story. I want them to hear what Jesus has done. I want them to understand that I'm not against them. I'm actually for them. And so, locked down, he speaks up. While he's locked down, he speaks up. He he says, Let me address what is happening here. Let me address why it is that i'm here in the first place even though i knew that all of this suffering was lying in front of me and i I don't want to just encourage you in something I, i think life hands its own beat downs we find ourselves oftentimes in things that we did not expect from family situations and relationships that are difficult health issues Uh, We we find ourselves in in unhealthy job situations and and places of difficulty and financial trials. This whole global pandemic has brought with it its own share of troubles to our area and throughout the world. Life sometimes hands us beatdowns. But the beauty of Paul's perspective here is he says, even in the suffering... There's an opportunity for me to talk about the hope that lies within me. There's an opportunity for me to to embrace even the difficulty and use it as a vehicle by which I can talk about what Jesus has done for me. There are are lots of people out there that in in the presence of difficulty and in the presence of trials, rather than being able to talk about the, the goodness of God and the redeeming power of God, they get locked in and closed down they they begin to only see the things that are fearful the things that are hurtful their their focus just narrows down to certain events that are generally negative or or painful in their lives but but paul he, he stands back up above the suffering And his perspective is, even in this, there's an opportunity for me to talk about the hope of the gospel. He is so laser-focused on the work of Jesus that even in this moment, even though he's locked down, he's using it as an opportunity to speak up. Well, he addresses the crowd in Hebrew language. Verse verse 1 of chapter 22 saying brothers and fathers hear the defense that i now make before you paul says hear my defense that word defense in the greek is apologia it's where we get our word apologetics which is a defense of the gospel it's 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 a way of talking about different attacks on the gospel or compromises in the gospel and how we refute those things it's where we get that word apologetics Now, now Paul is about to launch into his apologia, his defense, his one defense before the the Lord and before the people. And and he's going to do this by sharing his encounter with Christ. And in this, I think we're going to see that there, there is a common pattern that we can also use. To, to be able to share our story and, and what the gospel has done in our lives how it is that jesus has saved and redeemed us and so in verse 1 or verse 2 of chapter 22 he says this and when they heard that he was addressing them in the hebrew language they became even more quiet and he said hey i'm a Jew." born in Tarsus in Cilicia, which was, which was far away, but then brought up in this city in Jerusalem and educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was a highly respected member of the Sanhedrin and, and a rabbi, a teacher. And so when he name drops Gamaliel, they go, oh, wait a minute, we know Gamaliel and we know his teaching and we know, we know what he believes. And, and so he's buying their attention so to speak and he says I was raised under Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers so again he's, he's talking about the law he says our fathers he says man that this is something that I was brought up in I get it I understand it and he says even being zealous for God as all of you are this day he says I know why you guys are beating me up <laughs> I know why I'm getting punched and kicked and curb stomped because you guys are zealous the law of god you're zealous for uh the traditions of our fathers i also share that and then he's going to give an example he says in verse four i persecuted this way the way being a reference to uh those that followed jesus those that were following the way the truth and the life i persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness from them these religious leaders people that you respect people that hold the traditions highly from them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished and as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus At about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why why are you persecuting me? Now, those who were with me saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, well, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise, rise. And go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do, and since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, so here 's another person who honors the traditions of the fathers, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing beside me, said to me, "Brother Saul." receive your sight and at that very hour i received my sight and i saw him and he said the god of our fathers appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one that's jesus and to hear a voice from his mouth for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard and now why do you wait Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying unto me, Make haste. Get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of, of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving of and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he, that's Jesus, said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now here Paul offers up his, his mia apologia, his one defense. What is his one defense? Look, we, we could talk about traditions, we could talk about all these things. I have a, a high regard for my, my traditions, the things that were handed down to me, how I was raised, I have a high regard for your religious zeal and your, your zeal for the house of God and for the temple. I also honor those things. But why am I here? What is my one defense? What is my mia apologia? It's this. It, it's that I met Jesus. I saw him with my own eyes. I actually was, was hostile towards the faith. I, I was headed the other direction. I wanted to kill Christians just like you are trying to do to me. But then as I was on my way to do that, I saw the risen and resurrected Jesus. He came to me. And in blindness, I had, to, I had to rethink everything that I had believed. If this Jesus really is the Messiah, if he really is risen from the dead, if this really is the king that God promised, then what does that mean? He had to, in darkness, think about all the implications of the gospel. And that set for him a new course in life. To where even in the presence of suffering, even knowing the bad things that were coming, that he would have to still continue to proclaim who Jesus is. You see, Paul's gospel focus brought him to a place where he had to, he was compelled to share his gospel experience. And verses 20, chapter 21 verse 40 all the way through verse 21 of chapter t- uh, 22 Paul is building a bridge to be able to share the gospel with the people he speaks their language he comes to them in Hebrew he's not speaking Greek and he, and he says to them hey listen up here is the story of why I'm here he shares their language, or he speaks their language. He shares their commonality. He's like, man, I came from the same history that you do. I came from the same background as you. I understand the same principles. I have the same honor for the things that you do. Man, I, I get it. I get why you're here. We are common in our understanding, we have had the same life experience. We share these things together. But then. Not only does he speak their language and share their commonality, but in verses 6 through 21, he states his experience. He says, but guys, even though we have the same background, and even though we've, we've shared the same language and culture, and we understand the same things, I've had an encounter that changed me. It changed my perception of the world. It changed my understanding of of, of life and God and what the point of all this is. I've had an encounter with the risen and, and resurrected Jesus, the King above all kings, the Lord above all lords. And he has sent me into the world for this purpose that I might proclaim my experience with God that I might proclaim the coming of his king. And if I could offer some form of encouragement to you, I would say, man, sometimes the gospel gets overcomplicated. We, we worry about the technicalities of like, well, I need to say this formulaic way of, of presenting the gospel. I need to ask these questions. Listen those tools can be helpful it's helpful to have an understanding of apologetics but listen even more than apologetics in the in the scientific sense of understanding all arguments against god there is one apologetic that matters most and that is have you encountered the risen and resurrected jesus have you come to know him? Has, has he spoken to you and called you unto himself? Has your heart been changed by the gospel? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Listen, the most powerful defense that you have is a life that is surrendered to Jesus. A life that's been changed. and Man, it, it, it's good. It is good to, to speak the language of the people around us. It is great for us to share commonality with our, the, the people in our community, or our friends or family or coworkers or wherever we have influence. But at some point we have to say, listen, I don't see the world the way that you do. There's a difference in in, in some of our experience. And what is that difference? I met Jesus. And he really truly changed me i'm different i'm not perfect i'm not anything special i'm not you know better than the average citizen and matter of fact in some ways when you compare me to others i might even be worse but i know jesus i met him he's real and he changed me. He changed my heart. And i, I, I got to tell you that, that when the burden of my sin was lifted through the gospel, my heart was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when I believed and when I trusted what Jesus did for me, it changed me radically from the inside out. And so we share a lot of the sameness. But man, if I, if I could just tell you there is something glorious in truly knowing who Jesus is, and truly being saved. So we see this pattern. He speaks their language. He shares their commonality. He states, finally, his experience, his encounter with Jesus. And guys, sharing the gospel with the people around you is, is as simple as that. And I, I, You know, I, there was a time uh, a while back uh, when I was pastoring in Cave Junction. I, I wanted our church to reach out. You know, I wanted them to to go out into the community and, and share the gospel and so what we did is we took several thousand dollars and we divided it up into envelopes enough to give one envelope to every single person in our church and we said okay look this is what that money is for okay uh we want you this next week to take a friend take a coworker out to coffee Uh, Take a family member and sit down with them and and sit down across the table and just tell them what Jesus has done. Listen, we're we're content to talk about Christianity. We're content to talk about God. But oftentimes the one thing that we avoid the most is the, the most important piece. How has Jesus changed you? so I, I gave those envelopes to every person in our church. Every person got an envelope. And they were sent out to go and share the gospel. And you know what I found? I heard back from two of them. Two people. That's it. After all, you might say, well, that, that's a waste. Well, it gave me a really good metric for the health of our church. Because even though they had the resources in front of them, even though they had the ability in front of them, it was going to cost them nothing but pride to be able to share the story of Jesus. They were reluctant to talk about how Jesus had changed them. And I I just want to encourage you, guys, we can talk around the issue all day, but at some point you have to be able to say, this is how Jesus has changed me. This is what he did in my life. I'm different now because of this. Well, that's what Paul does here with his fellow countrymen. Now, I want you to notice the results here. Okay, here's the results. He says that, that Jesus told him, go for I will send you uh, far away to, and then you should hear, dun, 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 the Gentiles, right? That is the trigger word for this crowd. They're like, what? <laughs> I knew it. I knew you loved these people from other cultures. I knew you loved the Gentiles. And they are bent. Verse 22, of chapter 22. And upon this word, they, uh, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. Okay. Little caveat here, just real quick. I want you to see this. Sometimes, when you share the gospel, the sky does not open up and revival does not break out. (laughs) Matter of fact, sometimes you share the gospel and you share your story, and it gets real awkward. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, I'm not sure what to do with this. Listen, sharing the gospel is always clunky. It's always weird. There's never been a time where I've shared the gospel with somebody and, and come to that moment where I've had to say, listen, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about what he's done? And, and had it be just totally comfortable, like just so easy to talk through. It's not, because it's a dividing line. It's uncomfortable every time. And there's a great many times in sharing the gospel that the outcome is not what you had hoped. But we share the gospel anyway. If we're gospel focused and we've had a gospel experience, we cannot help but talk about the things that we have seen and heard. We have to talk about it. And that's just what Paul does here in verse 23. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, I mean, this is a wild scene. They just, like, start screaming. They rip their clothes. They just grab dirt and, like, throw it up in the air. They're they're so bent out of shape. Then the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is is, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Now, here's what's happening. The tribune says, okay, bring him in the barracks. Bring him in here. We got to figure out what what this mess is. So we we need to get the truth from this guy at all costs. So they, they stretch him out. They stretch Paul out. They tie up his hands and put him up against the whipping post where they're going to flog him. Right at the last minute, before the flogger begins to whip and beat Paul, Paul says, Is it is this lawful for you to do this? Because I'm a Roman citizen. Now, here's what you need to know. Historically, in, in the Empire of Rome, if you were not everybody in the Empire of Rome was a citizen. If you were a citizen of Rome, if you had citizenship for Rome, then that entitled you to due process. You had to be given a fair trial. You had to be, your case had to be heard. You were not allowed to be whipped or beaten until you had had due process in a court of law. And so now they're about to beat this guy without due process, which puts them in jeopardy. So the guy that's got the whip is like, oh, hey, let me put that down. And and he goes back to the drawing board, goes back to the tribune and begins to tell him. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came to him and said, tell me, are, are, are you a Roman citizen? And he, that's Paul, said yes. The tribune answered and said, I, I bought the, citizen, the citizen, citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So there were two classes of citizenship. You could buy citizenship if you gained wealth. Uh, but but Paul was actually born by birth was a citizen of Rome. So those w- who were about to examine him withdrew from it immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, and that he had bound him. Now, in this story here, Paul comes down to the moment where he's rejected the, the gospel has been rejected his encounter with Christ is, has been rejected by his own countrymen now they're going to whip him and he appeals to his own citizenship here's what he's doing, he's essentially saying, look um, it is it is important for me as a citizen of this country to be given certain rights, according to your own laws And those laws that were established for my protection, I'm now appealing to those laws in order that I might continue to live as a free citizen in this society. So he's using the legal means of authority, the legal means of a government to protect his own life, even though that government was wicked on many levels. He appeals to the rule of law in the middle of this. Paul is rejected by his community in verses 22 to 23. He's restrained by the authorities in verse 24. And in verses 25 to 29, he's rescued then by the regulations of the government. Now you guys know the current political climate. Uh, If you are not living in a hole somewhere or a bunker uh, then, then you've no doubt read the news articles that come across the feed continuously or, or watch the nightly news. Perhaps you've been involved in some Facebook fights or some sort of social media battles that have raged back and forth. Our, our country is, is really being ripped apart. Now, some of this comes down to, in, in the middle of the coronavirus virus. Some of this comes down to perception that is that there are there are people in greater populous areas parts of of the country that have a lot of people condensed into uh, a small environment in urban areas and and on a daily basis what 's happening is the people in those cities recognize that, like they are they're walking across and in front of hundreds of people throughout the day they they 're walking across and touching doorknobs and entering businesses and, and standing in line with, with people in close proximity at Starbucks and, and, and touching elevator buttons. Every day the contact that they have with the, the germs and the possibility of getting sick around them is, is astronomical. They can't stop being exposed to what everybody is exposed to. And so there is genuine fear in these environments, and then you come to a place like Southern Oregon, a, a, a place like this, where you know I might actually go through an entire day, where the only person that I have any physical contact with is my wife and kids. That's it. I might get in my car in the morning, leave, go to work, sit in my office, uh, study the Bible, and make phone calls and answer emails and whatever else, and then leave at the end of the day. Wave at my coworkers, make my way home, and I haven't touched a single soul throughout the day and so in my experience the threat of this thing is well, it's not as accentuated as it would be if I lived in a different place in the country and so we see this, there's a battle between urban areas and rural areas We see that there is a high level of fear and awareness in these urban places and in more rural areas. There's like, listen, the thing I fear the most is not being able to feed my family because I, I, I can't open the doors of my business or I don't have a job to go to and there aren't opportunities for me to replace that income. The threat is perceived differently from two different points of view. And this has led to a division in thought on the best way to approach the issue of, of of how best to proceed for us here in southern oregon we see the bigger issue as being financial stress and and the shutdown of our state and the economy for places where there have been larger outbreaks the very real possibility that somebody that they love somebody that they're connected to might come down with the virus or that they themselves might be exposed to it and that their life might be in danger that that's the most scary thing that they can possibly imagine then you add to that all the other things that are that are factors here you add to that the argument about the constitutionality of the prohibitions that are in place during the covid-19 crisis you add to it that that the rights guaranteed in the Constitution have been suspended for the common good of fellow citizens then then seed into that, pour into that the political divide and the current political climate climate in, a, in an election year. You add the prevalence of conspiracy theories on the internet, everything from you know Bill Gates to whatever I, I heard one right at the very beginning of this. I heard one that that, what was really happening in the lockdown was that there was a giant meteorite that was going to strike the earth, and the, that the governments of the world had united in force to keep people in their houses to lessen the casualty for when the meteor strikes the earth. That was one of the, the conspiracies that I heard. There's fears about globalization, and as a result of that, there's racism that is taking place, especially in city environments where there is a larger population of people who are Chinese. And and when you you take all of that, you you put it in a blender, you mix it all together, and what you end up with is, is, is a situation where as a country, and listen, listen, as a church, we are divided about how best to proceed. And what are Christians to do? What are Christians to do when when the scriptures clearly give us directives about how best to be citizens to even a godless governance? Let me just show you here. Let's go, if you flip forward to, to the book of Romans, to chapter 13, let me read to you what Paul the Apostle writes to the citizens of Rome. Okay? He says this, in chapter 13 of the book of Romans, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. So every authority that exists comes from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, hear this, resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad But also for the sake of your own conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Now you have to understand that as Paul writes to the church at Rome, he's writing to people who understand the wickedness of the government that they are under. They are right in the front row. They are in the the Washington D.C. of the Roman Empire. They see all the the slime of politicians and all all the the the. Uh, Agenda that people have for their own purposes. They see the the intermixing of government and business and buy-offs and the crushing of of the poor. They, They see all of it, right? And yet Paul says to these Roman citizens, give honor to those authorities. You know, the apostle Peter says the same thing. Let me read this to you. He says this be subject this is first peter chapter 2 verse 13 be subject for the lord's sake to every human institution whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good for this is the will of god that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. And then he says, and honor the emperor. So here we see in Scripture, there is a divine directive to submit and to surrender to authorities. And, and the deal is, is that Christians really have a, a first obligation in priority. They, they have a first obligation to surrender to and obey the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, Jesus, right? And to be aligned with or pledge allegiance to the kingdom of God above every other kingdom, whether that is the U.S. Constitution or any other thing. Their first obligation in priority is to honor God and to submit to his authority and and, and to, to fear him first and foremost. That's their first order of allegiance. Yet it's also important to remember that one of the decrees of that king is that all authority on earth has been given by him and that we're to honor that authority. We're given hope, though. And some of you will, will say, hey, listen, that's a terrible idea. There have been evil governments throughout the ages that have done terrible, terrible things. There comes a point where you, you have to defy those orders. You have, to, you have to do something different. Well, we're given hope in a couple of ways. First of all, we're given hope that those that have been given authority will be held accountable to God by the way that they use that authority. That ultimately, the judge of all the earth will do right. And that those who wield that authority will give an account to him for how they use that authority. Not only that, we're also told that we, as citizens of those governing authorities, will also give an account to God for how we submit or surrender to that authority so you you say okay but well, jeremy I'm, I'm tracking with you and you're kind of irritating me right now because you know i've got i've got a gun and i've got the constitution in my back pocket and i'm i'm ready to go And listen i i get it i i love the constitution i'm glad to be where i'm at i'm glad we are given the legal means by which we can talk about what is just and what is right where certain rights are guaranteed to us i, I i'm sympathetic with it The question for us as believers is this. Where is that line? What, what do we do? Is, is it submission at all costs, no matter what? Is this ultimate? At, at what point do Christians have a right or even an obligation to disobey those authorities? Well, I think we can learn from Paul's example and the whole of Scripture to gain wisdom in making decisions about our own actions. So, so before disobeying what is clear in Scripture that we're to honor authority, we have to ask ourselves a few questions. Is there a biblical case, because God is the one who established that principle, is there a biblical case for when we should not submit to authority do we have clear and biblical reasons for doing so what are some examples in scripture basically there are four defenses for an argument for civil disobedience and an, an argument to to not obey the laws of the land the first one is this it 's an argument for the law above the law so an example of this would be like Moses Uh, In the story of Moses, the midwives were told to take the babies and kill them after they were being born. So any male baby that was born was to be killed. Uh, But that would cause them to violate the law of God in in not murdering and not killing. Or or the magi who were ordered to give up the life of Jesus. Or or Daniel who was commanded not to worship God. There was a, a higher law that had greater authority that was more important in that time. So the question for uh, for believers then, is there a law of God that is being violated or omitted? Or, 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 in other words, to submit to the laws of the land, are we in some way sinning to obey those laws? Well, in the case of the midwives, that's very clear. Absolutely, they would be sinning to kill those babies. Daniel, the same way, for them to not worship god and to be forced to worship an idol that they, they were not able to do that because there was a higher law in place and they needed to surrender to the higher law first the second argument is the the argument from uh, the good samaritan principle so the good samaritan this story is found in luke chapter 10 verse 25 through 37 and, and the question it's asking, because remember the, there was the, 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 the man who was on his way to go worship and he got overtaken by thieves and beaten and left for dead and the, the, the Pharisee and the Levite skirt around him and don't want to engage because the law of the land said that they would be defiled by touching his body. But then comes along a despised Samaritan who sees him, has compassion on him, and cares for him. He violates the cleanliness laws in order to care for that person. Why? Because there was, again, a greater law. The greater law was to care for those who are hurt, who are wounded, to care for those who have been injured among you. And so he ignores the traditional law for the sake of embracing a greater law in the care for his fellow man, for those that are made in the image of God. So the question being asked here is, is there a biblical directive that we are ignoring by not standing up to a law that has been given? The third argument is an argument from self-defense. A great example of this would be the story of Esther, where there is a plot to, to kill all the Jews. And Esther violates the law of the land in order to protect others. And so the question that's being asked here is, are we protecting the lives of those made in the image of God? Are we, are we saving people by violating the law? And the fourth argument is this. It, it sounds similar to the last one, but it, it, it's got some nuance. It's, it's different. This is the argument from the necessity of defense. So a good example of this would be Joshua. Joshua. Uh, in, the, in the story of Joshua is that the spies go in to, to look at Jericho and see what's there Rahab the harlot lies to the authorities of that government and hides the spies to preserve their life right, another way to say this is do, do we violate a present law for the good of a, a, a law that is um, or for the good of preserving a life and saving it We violate a good law in order to keep a higher law. So in those four examples, they kind of boil down to basically the same points. There's a necessity to defend those around us. There's a need for self-defense and self-preservation, like in the story of Esther. There's a need to care for our fellow man. And, And there is a set of laws that take precedence over the laws of the land, and that is the law of God. So in the end... You have to be able to make a biblical case that the violation of the laws of the land align with what we see in Scripture as being times where God has honored that violation. Otherwise, we are to submit to the laws of the land. Now in the end, as you ask those questions, it is, Is, in this present situation, there a law that is being given to us that causes us to sin against God and violate his law? Or, is there a biblical directive that we've been giving that we are ignoring for the sake of keeping the law of the land? Or, is it necessary for us to break the law to protect the lives of those who are being killed as a result of the law or should we violate a good law to keep a higher law you have to be able to answer those questions before you step into the the arena of civil disobedience so here's some questions i want to ask you And, and by the way i should say this even at that stage it's very rare that you are obligated to violate a law. More often, it might be that you are permitted to violate a law. Not obligated, but permitted. And there's a major difference, a major distinction between the two. So here's some questions that I would like you to ask. For your own self and for your own heart, questions that I've, I, I've had to ask my own self as well. First of all, are your kingdoms properly prioritized? Where does the law of the land, the the constitution, the government, uh, where does that fit in priority to the law of Christ and submission to his authority? The kingdom of God has to be first, and the law of the land has to be second. In other words, I can't flip-flop the two and and, and say, no, the, the, the law of the land is first and and the kingdom of god comes secondarily so that if there is you know uh, dissonance between the two that that i default to here first because the law of the land is mo- more important no i i have to default the other way around that is that the kingdom of god comes first its principles along with those principles romans 13 along with those principles the need for justice and care for the poor along with those principles, a whole bunch of things about loving our fellow man. Are your kingdoms properly prioritized? Second question. We're commanded in Scripture to faithfully pray for those who are in authority. Listen, I have seen on Facebook and social media people that I know that are mature believers bashing Kate Brown and saying the most ungodly things that you could possibly imagine. And in the middle of that, I, I find myself going, look, have you prayed for her? Have you, have you fulfilled the first command of God and coming to the Lord and saying, God, move her heart, save her, change her, make her different, God, continue to work through her, dispense your authority and your goodness through her. Have you prayed for her? I would say, based upon their attitudes, they have not, because it is impossible to hate somebody you're praying for. Third thing. Have you explored legal options before jumping to illegal options? Before you step into the arena of civil disobedience, have you explored what legal means there are to protect rights before you step into the arena and violate God's law in submission to authority? Before you jump to illegal options, have you explored the legal options? Fourthly, is there a biblical reason to disobey the command of Jesus that we should obey the authorities? Is there a biblical reason to do that? Those are the questions you have to answer before you you join the protest and you join the throng. Now, I realize that right now, even those of you who are at home may fall on either side of, of that argument. And if you can answer those questions with integrity, I, I do not besmirch you whatever side of that argument that you fall on. But you have to answer those questions first. And you have to answer them with integrity. Does your reason for disobeying the law meet the criteria that we talked about? In the end, you know what Paul does? He uses legal means to protect his rights. That's what he does. He says, I'm going to use the law of the land in order to guarantee the rights that I have as a citizen. He uses legal means to defend himself. And I think that there's a principle here for us to examine in our own hearts. Listen, don't get caught up in the rhetoric. Don't let social media inflame you. Don't let the news media outlets whip you into a frenzy. Be grounded and rooted in your identity, in the gospel, and in the kingdom. Let the law of God and the commands of Scripture guide you and surrender to Jesus' authority first. Well, as we wrap up here, there's something that I I think is important, and that is this. Paul's only defense, his one defense, his mia apologia, is that the risen Jesus and his kingdom are worth living for Worth sacrificing for, worth foregoing his rights for, worth suffering for, or even worth dying for. If our motivation is in order that we might live for the glory of God's kingdom, we're on solid ground when we stand before the Lord. In closing, I'd like to just read a scripture over you. I just, I just, I want, I want to read this to you. This is from First Peter. Chapter 3, verse 8, he says this, Finally, all of you, and he's just been done talking about uh, submission to authority. He says this, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this is what you were called to But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make an apologia, a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is is within you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ might be put to shame. For it is better for you to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And then he gives the reason why. For Christ also suffered once for, sin, for the sins uh, the righteous for the unrighteous that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Guys, this is how God has called us to live and to conduct ourselves in a society where there is so much division. May God humble us through His Word and keep us close to Him as we surrender to Him. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the way that it speaks to us. God, I ask that you would sharpen our senses, that we would not be pulled by the prince of the power of the air into debates and pulled into all the negativity that is around us, that with a singleness of heart we would surrender to you and make your name known in the world. Help us to major on the things that are major and minor on the things that are minor. Help us to keep our kingdom priorities straight. That, God, we would be protected and insulated from being whipped up into a frenzy to such a place where we violate clear commands of Scripture when there is not a specific need to do so. May each believer this morning receive from you conviction where there needs to be conviction direction where there needs to be direction i pray for those who who feel inclined and pressed by you to to protect the rights of others and to protect the rights of business owners god would you bless their heart for you and keep them from falling into the pitfalls of the rest of the world and for those who feel inclined to protect those who are vulnerable in our population and and to submit and to surrender god would you Would you guide them in that process? Would you give them wisdom? Because ultimately, Lord, each one of us will give an account to you. We submit our hearts to you today. We thank you for your word. In the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen.
1: Amen. Thanks, Jeremy. We're going to sing one more song this morning. I think this song fits well here just because there's an aspect of humility, asking the Lord to uh, lead us to the cross where we're not the authority, um, but God acknowledging that we're we're humble before Him and asking God to lead us to His heart um, for even this whole situation. So we're going to sing Lead Me to the Cross one time uh, before we dismiss you this morning. So feel free to sing it with me.
2: Savior, I come quiet my soul. Remember Redemption's here where your blood was spilled for our ransom. Everything I once held here I count it all as lies. Lead me to the cross where your love poured out. Bring me to my knees, Lord, I lay me down. Bring me myself. I belong long to you The cross where you will pour it out. Bring me to my knees, Lord. i lay me down. Bring me of myself. I belong to you. No,
1: God, in this time would you lead us to consider the most important thing above all else and it's the good news of your son the gospel in these trying times lord i pray that we wouldn't get distracted with fighting the wrong battles but god we would remember what it is all about and what you did in love for the people that you created and sending your son down to die on that cross God and, and in singing this song too we do ask that you would humble us God and and lead us to your heart for the situation lead us in our conversations with people God, we want to be your hands and feet we want to we are ambassadors God we want to represent you well we just pray that you lead us by your spirit to say what needs to be said to not say what does not need to be said and again, God, just to keep the main thing the main thing. So um, we're humbled by you, God. You're, you're so worthy of our praise and affection, Lord. And we just ask that that this week that you would use uh, the people of Heritage in and, and a unique way and continue to use us, God, as vessels however you'd see fit in this time. Let me just pray this in Jesus' name.